I wanted to understand why my mother gave me up. Like, what does she go through? And it's just like, on my birthday, does she remember me? And I think she does because I feel her energy. I feel her kind of like praying for me. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. Hey there, it's Tracy. Before we start the show, wanted to let you know that we are accepting applications to be a part of the Vietnamese Boat People Ambassadors Program. This is an opportunity for individuals looking to get involved in the community and to help us capture stories and gain new listeners. If you're passionate about our podcast and the mission of our nonprofit, we invite you to join us by applying online. Visit our website at vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash ambassadors. We're now six episodes into season four, The Search uncovering stories from individuals searching for someone or something, whether it's a missing loved one, an object or artifact, or even just a state of mind. In this season, our guests are sharing that the process of finding answers can be a long one. And even if it ends in finding that one missing piece in your life, the journey to heal and find closure is ongoing. In this episode, one of our producers, Sao Lingui, takes you into a story about a Vietnamese adoptee searching for her birth mother. I first met Naoko Sunoda when she was a featured storyteller on the second annual Me Viet Story Slam, a virtual storytelling event hosted by the Vietnamese Boat People podcast. The first thing that stood out to me about Naoko was her name. In her story slam piece, she explained that she had been born to a Vietnamese birth mother and then adopted by Japanese parents when she was still an infant. For Naoko, 2020 was a year of cathartic experiences, one of which was being pulled by the universe to find her birth mother. So I was born in Los Angeles, California, um, but I was conceived in an Arkansas refugee camp. I was born to a Vietnamese uh, birth mother I don't know who my birth father is because in my social paper uh, records, it doesn't. She doesn't know who the father is. Apparently, she had like multiple partners, um, but that's not. I think there are deeper implications to that, um, and she didn't. She doesn't know who the birth father is. I also know that my birth, my Vietnamese birth mother, also had a seven-year-old daughter. So I actually have an older half sister. And hopefully in sharing this story, um, you know, I have a a (laughs) half-sister out there somewhere. What I know of her is through the Department of Adoptions County of Los Angeles. It's like this, like, really, like, um, discolored paper now. So that's, like, my life. Each state in this country has different um, regulations and policies about adoption. Nowadays, it's much more open, but my understanding is for California, until 1980, everything is closed and you have to have dual consent, which means that 
the adoptee and then the birth mother in this case, they both have to sign a legal document and an agreement and bring it to the court of law for it to potentially even begin opening um, any kind of conversation or search. For all purposes, mine is still closed. So I, I have two documents. So one that was written to me, um, to my parents, and then one that I, as an 18-year-old child, could further find out for more, more information. Now I would like to put into writing what we know about the two people who gave life to Naoko and the circumstances which made her available for adoption. I hope this will be helpful to you in telling Naoko about herself as she grows older and has questions about herself. Naoko's natural mother was born in 1951 in a rural area of Vietnam. Her family had a small farm and she attended some classes, but did not have much of a formal education. At some point, she moved to Saigon and married in 1968. She gave birth to her first daughter on July 7, 1970. During the fall of Saigon in 1975, her husband was killed and she became separated from her brothers and sisters. Left with few options, the natural mother and her daughter were evacuated from Vietnam going first to Guam, and then to a refugee camp in the eastern part of the U.S. She obtained a sponsor and moved to Texas in January or February of 1976. She then came to Los Angeles to be near friends in April 1976. Naoko's natural mother was described as an attractive woman who was 5'1", and weight approximately 115 pounds. She had brown hair, black eyes, and an olive complexion. The letter goes on to describe the natural mother's struggle to adjust to life in a strange country. She spoke very little English, was considered unskilled, and had not been able to find employment. She did not feel capable of raising another child in a new country with no family to help her. She was confused with all the paperwork and legal issues. She related that in Vietnam, if one could not keep a baby, it was simply given to a nearby family who could provide for it. That was considered adoption in her country. There's no information on the birth father other than the fact that he is Vietnamese. She decided to relinquish Naoko for adoption in October 1976. Her desire was that Naoko would have a loving, secure two-parent home. I think she would be happy to know that Naoko has found such a home with you. To me, because it's so blatantly like closed because I was given up for adoption, the desire, and maybe it's like just the timing because I'm like midlife, is like I cannot have my life ending without me knowing uh, my history, like my 98% history. So I, I find it as a mission and a calling and a purpose to go back and like, you know, get to the root of it. I shared with you the story that she had a seven-year-old child and then a stillbirth. I mean, I hope she has an opportunity to share that story. And then I, I come along. Um, and there are perspectives. It's like, why couldn't you just have me? Like, why couldn't you just keep me one more child? Because there are, like, there are big families. But I get it. Like, now that I'm an adult, it's like, okay, yeah, what the heck? You don't speak the language. You don't have a job. You don't have an education. What? do you have? Like, what are the opportunities you have? Now I see it as like, oh my gosh, what a bold move she made, because I think it was hard. I think the decision was extremely hard to like, 
uh, give up a child. Um, and then like, it makes sense, totally makes sense. In 1977, Naogo was adopted by Koichi and Masako Tsunoda, two Japanese expats living in the U.S. at the time. They already had a five-year-old son who was adopted in Canada, and according to the social worker who matched Naogo with her parents, they had an immediate connection with her. The adoption was finalized in November of that year. I always had a birth name, but um, my parents had actually put it in file and I never asked for it and I always was Naoko and it's just amazing. Like you're only ready for information when you're ready. Last year, I did pay someone to investigate to find my birth name. This is like my original name in the birth certificate, Mi Ti Bui. And so now, for the first time, I'm like kind of embracing two names, Naoko Tsunoda and Miti Bui. Um, it's like two dual identities that I'm just super blessed and thankful for. The power of like DNA runs deep. I was very musical growing up as a teenager and I loved musicals as well. I think I like at one point wanted to be in a musical. I'm like, who's it's so funny. <laughs> there aren't a lot of Asian roles other than The King and I, which was like, you know, kind of like this Thai background. And then there was Miss Saigon. And Miss Saigon has gone through like so many other revivals, but this was like the original production. And I was like a musical geek. And I was like, okay, wait, 1975, it was the story of a GI going back through. Anyway, so I didn't know like the context, but somehow I knew I was born in 1976. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm Vietnamese. So here I was, I was a 16-year-old teenager and I was like, hmm, that could be me. And then two years later, as I was going off to college, my parents sat me down and they're like, yeah, now you're Vietnamese here. This is one side of your paperwork. And I was like, ah! <laughs> like, ah, lightning moment. Most, you know, freshmen in college, you go, you show up to, you know, there's obviously some kind of, um, you know, freshman, like assimilation going on. For me, I feel like it was even like just compounded because I was an American citizen because I was born in um, U.S., but all my adolescent is spent in um, Japan. So here I like completely just confused identity whatsoever. And then on top of that, my parents are like, you're, you're like Vietnamese. I'm like, what? What's going on? Despite growing up in a Japanese family and living in Japan from a young age, Naoko felt like she was not considered Japanese enough. Even though her family did not tell others that Naoko was adopted, she was still picked on for being born outside of Japan. There's one thing of being Asian, being adopted by Asian parents, um, which isn't that necessarily common in, in the United States. It's usually you know, racially diverse. So for those reasons, you look like your parents because you have black hair and black eyes. So for the longest time, yeah, I had to um, play the Japanese role, like because I had to assimilate in Japan, too, um, to be Japanese. If it's just like there's like this interracial dynamic that's open in the public, then it's a little more easier to have a conversation. But in Japan, it was like, no, you have to, like I was ostracized for, because I was an expat going into Japan, I was, I was bullied for um, speaking uh, English. 
And they're like, what, what, what do you, who do you think you are? And you can speak English, but I worked so hard to assimilate. And ultimately it actually manifested into um, me having like a really severe kind of like asthma attack and anxiety. So I was hospitalized. Eventually, her parents decided that a change of environment was needed. They sent Naogo back to New Jersey, where they had lived when she was younger. And I remember kind of, yeah, I got on the plane by myself at 12 and I landed in JFK. And then I got picked up by, by my best friend's family. And we just spent the whole summer just going to like the swimming pool and swimming. And like whatever the environment was in Bergen County, <laughs> the air, the venue, and the environment, I never pulled a um, drug or, you know, what was prescribed to me. I never pulled out my inhaler and miraculously I was cured. So then I returned back to uh, Japan and I was privileged to go to an international school because in a Japanese public school, it's kind of like the same similar dynamics you would experience anywhere. So my parents <laughs> sent me to private school because they thought like the bullying would be less. And that's when I started to kind of like share a little more, maybe like with my close friends that I'm adopted. My mother would eventually become like she was a potter and she taught pottery at my school and she would become a teacher at my school. And it's really funny um, in terms of nature versus nurture is that a lot of people were like, you look like your mom, you act like your mom, you talk like your mom. <laughs> so like, so there's one, like the big, big part of that uh, nurture piece. But then the nature piece is like, I loved fish sauce. I loved cilantro. It's so weird. Um, you don't find those things in like Japanese, you know, Japanese culture. It's like soy sauce and sake and meeting and sugar. And that's about it. It was in your blood. It really is in my blood. I, there's something deeply comforting. 1994 was my first trip. And then 1998 was my second trip. I remember the first visit to Vietnam, I was able to have this with my parents and we went as my father, my mother, and me, and we kind of did an homage trip. We're tourists, we don't speak Vietnamese, and we had an interpreter. And then my senior dissertation and painting in college, Allegory of Vietnam, my professor had suggested that I go back to Vietnam to shoot photos. And so we went, and I, I will never forget the amazing like chicken, like sliced chicken dish that we had, so good. But it's like the, you know, the lemon lime juice and the cilantro and the fish sauce. And, but there was something extremely familiar with the condiments and how it was sauteed and how it was marinated that was really close to Japanese um, flavor profile. It's like, and in Japan, it's like torino sasami and like chicken with a little soy and a little maybe oil. Um, and it was just so reminiscent. And I'm like, two cultures so far apart, two countries so far apart, but there can be similarities. Then um, my father passed away. My father died in the midst of giving a speech on the podium um, and he had a brain aneurysm. I think in hindsight, it's kind of like a morbid but God's intervention is, I think my parents couldn't have biological children because there was a genetic disease in the DNA. 
So my father's side of the family shares that brain aneurysm. I kind of like went to the rebellious phase. I was like, okay, immediately like when your father passes away, when someone dies in your immediate circle, you immediately think, okay, what is it in life? It is, life is so ephemeral. We got to make the best of it. We need to live in the moment, the present, and do what you love. Continue to do what sparks joy. And so I went back to my 12-year-old self. And I guess like as a child where you, you know, you feel like you don't belong, food is like the first sense of comfort. Now go attended culinary school at both the French Culinary Institute in New York City and the London branch of Le Cordon Bleu. She went on to work at the Tea Box Cafe at Takashimaya in New York City. I naturally grew up um, loving or understanding green tea because my maternal grandmother taught me how to brew it. Um, and she's my grandmother who lived until she was 100 years old. So I actually incorporated tea as an ingredient into doing a French course meal, using tea as an ingredient. I mean, I actually started appreciating tea in the United States, which is the total irony of it all, because Japan is a tea producing country like Vietnam. So a lot of the beautiful agricultural history is within the country. Tea um, is actually what started the uh, opium war, but it actually opens the direct route in imperialism, colonialism, aristocracy, bureaucracy, but it's, it's a cup, it's a tea, it's a beverage. <laughs> so there's so much into that cup. Unfortunately, in the current tea industry, Vietnam is a subclass. It's a subset because um, China purchases a lot from Vietnam. I think China is the biggest um, importer of Vietnamese teas. It's like they've commoditized it in a sense of it's kind of like a, a cheaper way to produce Chinese teas, uh, like black teas, oolong and green, a primarily green tea. So it's kind of a little bit of like an imperialistic nature of it um, versus no, it's like Vietnam has its own voice, has its own agricultural history. And I think tea is ripe for innovation in that area. And I would like to be that catalyst to open those doors. In 2020, Naogo achieved a dream that was 20 years in the making when she opened her own online tea boutique. Key to Teas offers sustainably sourced, specially curated teas from Japan, Vietnam, and other countries around the world. So I only currently import one tea from Vietnam, Oolong. So I've been able to work with the Viet producer and purveyor, actually. Um, I think there's just one <laughs> um, to be able to partner with them to bring it in. I named it Mi Tea Flowery Oolong um, for my name. Um, and it's like a subtle, subtle implication to, hey, this is my name. It's my best selling Oolong. And it's like, oh my gosh, like this is like, Right, God's way of telling me, stay true to yourself. The industry is hard enough in itself that it's gonna be your personal grit and perseverance, which is gonna take you through. There's this weird thing about me is that I always wanted to be a birth mother. And I wanted to be a birth mother because I wanted to understand why my mother gave me up. Like, what does she go through? And it's just like, on my birthday, does she remember me? And I think she does because I feel her energy. I feel her kind of like praying for me. 
like I shared a little bit alluded to is like she had multiple boyfriends that doesn't sound right I really don't think she was that promiscuous I think she had to do what she had to do to potentially gain sponsorship or um, get to one destination to the other that's my theory. If I do find my birth mother and if I do find my story, I will ask her. Um, and I think that's what she's going to say. Naoko is now a mother of three. Her two older children, both teenagers, have traveled with her to Vietnam. She hopes to take her youngest for a visit in the near future. So I did 23 Me, And not only am I Vietnamese, but the whole point is to find out whether you have cousins, siblings, whatever it is, um, whom you are ethnically connected to. So I um, unfortunately haven't had anybody very close DNA wise, like it's like less than 1%, but I'll take 1%. That means our great, great, great <laughs> grandmothers, which is not too far out, right? Um, we're connected. So the closest relative on 23andMe reached out and said that our maternal great-great-great-grandmother is from um, Natrang. Since discovering her family's origins, Naoko now dreams of someday living in the coastal city of Nyachang. So that's my calling, and I want to live there, breathe the air, just be in the environment, and then ultimately I want to help restore preserve that specialty, unique agricultural bounty that Vietnam has. So 2020, before 2020, in my uh, journey of closure, <laughs> I finally, um, pre-COVID, went back to the hospital um, that I was um, birthed in. I'm not familiar with LA. I was born there, but I didn't grow up there. So like, I just know that it's all spread out. And then even today, I think there is a disparity between the rich and the poor. Um, and this one was clearly in an inner city. It was like a hospital in the inner city. It's like right by the highway. So if I wasn't adopted, like what if she did keep me? I bet you we, we would have grown up in poverty I would have went to, you know, the, the public school within that district. Um, I don't know if I would have gone to college. Um, and what would I have known? I like, I don't know. And then the other flip side is, yes, I was given up for adoption. I went into foster care. You hear so many stories of people not being adopted by loving families and loving parents. That's another. I mean, it's like, it's a miracle. I want to share my story because I want my birth mother to be able to share her story. Like, that's the thing is like, I think in Vietnamese culture, it sounds like there's like that hidden silent code too. Like you don't get to share your pain and your, what you went through and the history and only now. It's amazing that the second generation is finally kind of opening up and sharing. What would you tell her if you met her again today? I would say, ultimately, thank you for going through that journey. Thank you for, for all you could do and all you had. With all the resources you had to have come to the States by way of Guam and um, 
yeah with a daughter it's just harrowing and I can't um, picture myself but I do know I could empathize in the sense of being a mother now I want her to be proud of me like you know you gave birth to this child and I've become a powerhouse for more details on Naoko and to watch her Mavic Story Slam video, visit our website at vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash 2021 storytellers. And to follow her tea shop online, go to key2teas.com or visit our Instagram or Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 30. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please, take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at